I always envy someone who has never seen one of the great operas before because they come at it with the same frame of mind as the first night audience would have come. Tosca is such a clear plot. It, it's, it's so driven by its plot. It's so um, evident as what's happening and, and the characters are depicted so strongly that I think it's one of those operas you don't need to, to, to do any prep for. It's not like you know getting to know the text of one of the Wagner operas, which will enhance your understanding. This is fundamentally a play uh, which has been set to music and I think just as you wouldn't prep for a play, I think you shouldn't really prep for this. We have surtitles, so you'll, you can understand exactly what's being said. If someone really doesn't know what's going to happen, because uh, it's like a thriller, um, I think the more unprepared they are, actually in this case, I think the better. For someone who doesn't know it, I think they're in a privileged position of, of receiving the, the, the weight of this piece, the... Um, stomach-churning intensity of it and enjoying that experience, that visceral experience. And it, it is like seeing a thriller. Um, you know, yes, you know when you go into a thriller on TV, you watch it on TV or, or in a movie, you know that there's going to be a body count. Blood and Thunder is so integral to the experience of this piece. The appeal of Sardou's play, I can see why Puccini was so keen to write it because it, it fits like a glove to the way that he was writing opera. It was, it's an opera waiting to be written, really. I mean, fundamentally, it is, it's a melodrama. It is full of these incredibly strong scenes, strong moments. That was one of the theatrical forms of the time, is that the plays had music playing consistently. And if you think of the, the end of Act Two, when um, Scarpe is dead and, and, and Tosca lays out the, the candelabra and the crucifix, that is an example of 19th century melodrama, of action described by music and, and acting to music. The beauty of this opera is all the, the protagonists are just thrown into this nightmare. The gripping part of watching it, the awfulness, is just recognising how events can spiral out of control. You know, you could arrive at a as a visitor to a country with a suspect political regime and innocently find yourself you know, swallowed up in something of, of your, not of your own doing. Cavaradossi is, is a sympathiser, but he hasn't actually done anything wrong until he hides the political prisoner. And Tosca certainly uh, is drawn into this nightmare of which she is completely innocent. That's the fascination and the horror of the thing, is the way that uh, normal people are suddenly finding themselves um, uh, embroiled in events of which they have no control and in which they will not get out. And you, the audience, know that. I think you, you, that's what you understand, that there is going to be no happy ending here. As soon as we meet Scarpi, we know that he will serve, he will get his job done, come what may, uh, even if it means people being killed. So you, you just get that sense that this is not going to end well. Is Tosca a tragedy? I don't think it really falls into that vein. I think Madame Butterfly is the nearest of the Puccini canon, which becomes a tragedy. The death of a character like Madame Butterfly arises through something more profound, through that character's understanding of the hopelessness of her situation. And her death becomes a mini-emblem for 
Japanese society, which is gradually inexorably being crushed by the incoming imperialist powers. So I think her death has a more symbolic um, nature than Tosca's, which is locked firmly into the events of this plot. The plot isn't constructed around character weakness or or even character. It's The plot is constructed around event and machination and manipulation. Tosca is resolutely plot-driven, mm-hmm. and that's great. Uh, so let's talk about the characters. Scarpia, of course, is the most fascinating character in the whole opera. The thing about Scarpia is that what drives him fundamentally is power. He's there to do a job. And if you divide how he deals with Cavaradossi from how he deals with Tosca, there are actually two different things, matters in hand. With Cavaradossi, he is carrying out the law. Now, we today look back at the seeming cruelty that where, where torture is, is, is a legal process. But we have to put ourselves, if we're looking at his character, we have to put ourselves, ourselves in his shoes and say he is doing the job. He's, um, and he needs that information in order to get back Angelotti. Um, and the law provides for torture, so he's, he's right in what he's doing strictly speaking. It gets more complex where he manipulates his his authority and power with his lust for Tosca. And therein, I think, lies the problem. Are there people in this world who would manipulate power? Absolutely. We see it all the time. The 20th century is littered with dictators um, who have taken power to an extreme. He abuses power. Uh, for his own ends. And I think what he's lost is the moral compass, which um, differentiates between pushing the boundaries of a law to achieve his ends and a willful disregard for other people's rights in pursuing his individual lusts. Tosca is, of course, one of the great um, soprano roles. You need to have a singer who has a blazing intensity, both musically and dramatically. Uh, At the same time, a great Tosca needs the ability to find the the humility before God. Uh, We always forget that probably the the clearest motivating fact of a Tosca is her devout Catholicism. Um, She's aware that... God is sometimes forgiving, and maybe she manipulates that to a certain extent. But she's fundamentally uh, a very simple person who finds herself in the spotlight with all the attention and pressure that that brings with it, and also finds herself completely out of her depth when confronting a monster like Scarpia. Um, so you need you need a very very subtle actress one who has the fire in the belly, but also can um, can bring what is actually a certain naivety in Act Two. Vocally, she needs to ride some um, quite strong orchestral passages and yet also have a, a fineness to be able to spin Visidate as well. Um, so you need a voice which is very flexible, which is dramatic, but at the same time um, has elegance and musicality. Would Cavaradossi and Tosca um, end up married and settle down? I'm not sure they would. I mean, she's a 
I think it would be quite a stormy relationship, in all honesty. I think you see it in the um, schoolgirl-like jealousy she expresses in, in the Act One duet. I mean, he, he manages to mollify it, and, and he's quite amused by it. Um, one feels probably he'd get a bit fed up in time, I think. I'm not sure it's a marriage made in heaven, really. To direct Tosca, you can actually get to a very effective Tosca production uh, with far less time than, say, doing Figaro. Um, but what a director must do is not be lazy and rely on how it's always been done. It's a, it's a trap which is easy to fall into. I think the director needs to look at it as if he's directing a play and not let the seemingly obvious emotion expressed in the music be the only level of emotion on stage. It's what I always call the, the sugar and honey principle, that if you put sugar in your tea, you don't put honey in. And the danger sometimes with music of this sort is that you over-egg the pudding. You, you, the emotion is there, the intensity is there. And if you allow the performers to over-exaggerate that passion, that emotion, you get something which is a bit too much. It's actually why some people say they don't like Puccini because they find it too emotional. And I'm always puzzled by that, how anyone would not like such well, incredibly well-written pieces. But I can understand that if there's this surfeit of of emotion musically and then duplicated in the acting, that it does become a bit, you know, almost unbelievable. So I, I look for the acting to actually to be pulled back a bit and to allow the uh, music, the emotion and music to speak and then just find key moments when you turn it up. You can find a, a range of um, character playing uh, which is far more subtle than the blood and thunder approach it normally gets. But it's it's due with not being too big in the acting um, and having the courage to hold back and find a real emotion. You know, the difference between uh, 19th century acting and what Stanislavski did, bringing the new naturalistic mode, is he defined it as not showing the act, the the character, but being the character. And I suppose the difficulty is these characters are, in one extent, so extreme that it's quite hard to get yourself into the understanding of them. But if you have the courage to be and not to show, then instantly your acting pulls back a notch. It lies in the way you play Scarpia. Um, you can play it in a very detached and laconic way, as if he is so almost amused by the power he has. And it's actually very easy. This is a routine day for him. And just finding the odd moment when he, he lets his guard down and really lets his personality come out. You get something which is far more sinister than someone who goes at it 100% from the first moment to the last. So I think you can allow yourself a much wider degree of subtlety in, in the way you direct it than is often the case. From a conductor's point of view, it's the same thing. It's about, it's about pacing. It's about finding the right moment to uh, let the situation be charged so it's not all 100% adrenaline. Um, of course, you know, if you think of a torture sequence in Act Two, there's a brilliant momentum to that. Um, but 
it's very easy to to let it sound so um, over the top musically that you lose fine focus. So I think for both jobs, um, the piece allows a lot more subtlety of interpretation than is sometimes the case. In recent years, I've seen more productions set in Mussolini's fascist time than I've actually seen productions set in, in 1800. So it updates very well. But in terms of radically deconstructing the piece, taking the... Uh, the various emotions of a character, the the thought patterns to a more universal plane. I think because the piece is so driven by plot, um, with very few moments for of reflection and thought, I think you would struggle a bit to do that. We're using a, a very historic set, which will give us a glimpse of certainly of how theatre looked in the early 1960s, with a sense of history on the stage, it will enhance the historic background to the piece uh, opera, I think. It will give us a sense, uh, with this brilliant um, paintwork on, on, on the scenery, uh, it will give us a real sense of place, of, of accurate place, uh, which, funnily enough, sometimes you, you can get better by painting it than attempting to recreate it in a three-dimensional fashion because you end up actually with scenery, if you, if you do it in three dimensions, you end up with scenery which can completely dwarf the performers and become all about the scenery. So in this way, you get the, the sort of monumental nature of a church at the same time uh, aware that once you, the audience, take it in, you take in the image, but then you focus back on the performers instead of being in awe and wonder at the splendours of a technical department who've recreated the interior of Sant'Andrea della Valle. So why would you come back to Tosca? Well, first of all, I think it is an opera where uh, the interpreters are crucial to your enjoyment. A new cast is certainly a driver. Um, I think it will be quite interesting to see this production in these historic sets because we're not used to that, and that will give a new perspective on the piece. And thirdly, um, it is one of those pieces which you do find new things every time you see it. A second and different viewing will inevitably reveal things uh, you haven't seen before. You can't take in an entire opera at one viewing.